Now everyone, just a quick note from me before we get into the episode. I've started a series of online events all about how to market and produce webinars successfully. If this is a topic that would interest you, I would welcome you to come along completely free of charge. If you visit pickingupperfection.com slash webinars for all the details, and I'll put that link in the show notes too. Hope to see you there and let's get on with the show. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Picking Up Perfection. I am so thrilled to introduce my guest today, trained National Health Service counsellor and CBT therapist, now published author and radio show host, Alison Blackler joins me in the studio. Welcome, Alison. Thank you so much for having me. It's brilliant to be here. Not a problem. You are most welcome. Any further introduction that you want to add to yourself about a bit about what you do and what you provide? Yeah, I think my background comes very much from uh, helping people with their minds, with their thoughts, their behaviours. And my collection, I think I could almost call it, of training takes me through, started with counselling and now much more coaching, but still always with that sort of that individual in, in the mind, you know, in their mind, but also in my mind. So I think studying human behaviour is something that I've personally fascinated by but also have made it my business too. Wonderful love that the individualized approach and you have a a very specific personal journey we we've had a bit of a pre-chat to this and we related to each other so much on such things as taking paths less walked perhaps facing a bit of imposter syndrome or pressure from other people for not necessarily having a normal job tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think for me, I did set out many years ago, not sure what to do, was influenced by other people, which is, you know, not wrong, but it wasn't, it certainly didn't turn out to be the right paths for me. So I made a choice a long time ago, 30 years ago, probably to, to question and become curious about, is this it? Was this path that I was on? And the way that my um, I suppose my parents were really, was that was that me? Was that the real me? So I kind of decided to start to study, but also just to understand myself, my own habits, my own patterns, and my own limiting doubts, you know, I became quite curious. And, you know, back then there was no internet. So it, it was very much going to libraries, trying to find things. I mean, there isn't there wasn't anything like there is now available. Uh, so I started on this little journey, really, a little bit on my own, um, trying to think, is this it? Is this it? But even so, still being the me that was probably on the outside looked quite chatty and confident, but on the inside, a whole different story. Do you think that you've found that then? Because I think life is always a journey, right? And it sounds like you've already been on one. Do you ever think that you'll arrive at that kind of inner peace of, of finding your true purpose? I mean, I think as far as you ever get there, I do feel like I found my sense of myself and I do feel comfortable in myself. But on the back of that, I never think you stop learning. So every day is still a learning day, whether that's for myself, whether I'm just noticing my own internal processing or whether it's with other people. I am still always fascinated by how we all are, how different we all are. I mean, the pandemic showed us how different that was for us to deal with. So I think we're always learning. Um, I'm under no illusion that um, I'm never still going to have new, fresh things that I think, oh, that's interesting. I wonder why I do that. 
Love that. No, we're very much aligned in, in that mindset. I completely agree. Life's a journey and we're we're always changing. And they're only through conversations like this will we truly understand what other people have been through uh, and in order to break down the barriers. And that's all what this podcast is about, truly. Um, in, was there in any particular, when you were forging your own path of this unconventional, shall we say, career that you that you walked, what particular adversity did you find or did you face on that route? I mean, I think my my first adversity was myself because I think we get in, in the way of ourselves. So my own mind almost, while it's your, it is your own best friend, it also can be your own worst enemy. Um, so I think my own self-doubt was, was part of the problem. But then there was also this being influenced by other people, people telling me that this is what I should do, this is what is right for me. So I found it quite hard because I did go along with that for a long time. You know, I think it's an innate need to please. I think mm. we all have a desire to please. We probably all want to please our parents. So I think there are a lot of people over the years I've spoken to who can resonate with that. You know, they try and please their parents, but then ultimately we're not our parents. Uh, we are our own person and how you then find that path. So for a long time, I did do the what everyone else thought I should do. And it wasn't until I started to realize actually that I was quite miserable doing that. Did I then become a little bit more, I suppose, brave and less conventional and, and branch out and do something that, you know, no one else particularly at the time thought was a good idea. Do you think that that misery drove you? Because sometimes I think you have to try things that you hate to realise what you like, right? It's a process of elimination and the nine to five sort of conventional career, it, it works for, you know, the majority of us or majority of people or most people have experienced it. How did you kind of come to the realisation of that misery? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I worked in the NHS for 24 years and for a lot of that time, it was great. I enjoyed it. I loved a lot of the people that I met. But I think it got to the point where the more I studied the human mind and I studied values and I started to really get close to what my values were around my my life, my work, making a difference was something that I wanted to do. And that became very difficult for me to be able to fulfill anything, even touch near that, where in the job that I was that, that I was in. So taking that big plunge partly came from values and partly came from, I don't know, I found an inner confidence to think, actually, I'm not going to run all these stories that people have told me. I am going to push myself. And yeah, I left. I left the NHS after 24 years with a permanent post, a safe salary, a pension, um, you know, to set up in my own business. And that was 12 years ago now. Wow. Well, congratulations. And and what a story. So, so very inspiring uh, in your, the way that you went about it, but also the, the bravery that I must have taken mm. because leaving that security behind, it, it's intimidating to a lot of people. Was it, how long in the planning was it? Was it like a knee jerk? Was it quite quick? Did you prepare in any way or did you just go, I'm just going to dive into this? I mean, I'm, I'm under no illusion and I would hate anyone else to think that I'm saying it was easy because it is a big decision, a massive decision and, you know, something that most people need to do. How I did it was I reduced a day. So I went down to four days a week. So for one day a week, I was doing my own thing. And that was almost the gateway because as soon as I did that, 
I suppose I was probably working three days on my business because I would be working weekends and evenings as well um, and then working four days in my role. And I think from then I started to realise that actually this was the right thing for me to do. And I remember one of my friends who used to organise the Christmas party and she used to start talking about it in February. <laughs> which, was, which was one of the things I was quite happy to, to get rid of. But she she joked, you know, she used to say, I wonder what we'll be doing for the Christmas party this year. And I and I remember saying to her, I won't be here. I'll be gone. She was like, don't be daft. You will. You'll still be here. And I went that summer. And I think once I decided I was going, I, I did make quite a quick decision. Obviously, I had a notice to work. But I did. I knew. I just knew it was the right time. And and again, I'm under no illusion that there was times where it wasn't hard. You know, you don't have the security of the salary at all when you're self-employed. But I never looked back. I'd, I suppose I went without some things, holidays and luxury things for a while. But I just knew. I just knew it was the right thing. So I suppose in that respect, it was partly me and partly the, the organisation. You know, I loved the NHS for so many years that I worked there. And it was, I suppose, towards the end that it became more and more difficult for me. I love that. So you made a promise to yourself of the time frame, And at, I think actually telling someone as well, probably saying that promise out loud, perhaps helped you cement that in your mind and some really good practical advice there. Definitely. And I, I like your, I think you took quite a, I don't mean this in a, a, um, a rude way, but like a safe approach in terms of like, you didn't just say, nope, I'm out and I'm going to go five days doing what I, that kind of gradual approach almost like testing the water, seeing if it would work. And then you were clearly like feeling onto something, making yourself happier, making other people happier as a result. And then you could embrace that fully um, throughout the, the time span you explained. Definitely. definitely. I mean, I think there's lots of people have different ways of doing it. That felt like it was a little tester for me just to check it out, to, to, to prove. And I think the other thing that's really important for me in this story is that me doing this was me breaking the mold. Because I was then going, I'm going to do this. I am going to do this. And I'm going to make this work and make this a success. So any of my doubters, whether it was myself or others around me who had that, I was being motivated almost to, to prove to myself that actually I can do this. And what was your main motivation to and way to surpass the doubters? So when someone said... I'm, which I imagine they did. Oh, you don't want to do that. No. Are you sure you want to leave that safe environment? How did you kind of combat that? How did you not let that bring you down? I think it was just sticking with my 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 instinct, my gut. I just knew it, it was the right time. You know, I mean, there was lots of things going on at the time. There was people talking about voluntary redundancy, which had never been a thing in the NHS. But people were talking about, was this going to be a thing? wasn't it? All sorts of things that could have so easily made me think, oh, well, you know, I've got 24 years. Do I want to leave now? Why? There might be some talk. And even that, I left even with that doubt hanging over me that I could have stayed and got, you know, a decent payout. I didn't. I just knew. I just had to keep pushing myself and say, this is my time to go. Um, and yeah, and obviously, thank goodness, <laughs> it worked. No, that's very powerful. And in your in one of your first sort of um, discussions, you talked there about how under, was the more you got to understand the makeup of our mind, that was more helping you realize 
that perhaps that kind of job and that career wasn't right for you. And a big part of your ethos, Alison, is understanding the mind, helping other people understand the mind and how it impacts. Tell us more about that. Definitely. I, I think if we understand a bit more about this powerful piece of kit up here, you know, so we understand about thoughts, about beliefs, about behaviours, about patterns, you know, about habits, about the, the the limbic system, which is our emotional brain, gets involved five times quicker than any logic. You know, when you start to know that that's going to happen, it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. It just means that's how we're wired. And I'm a big fan of helping people understand. So a lot of my training I share with people, whether that's individually, you know, helping them understand their own minds or whether that's in teams with leaders. I work in prisons and all the time just giving people some ideas that like, oh, that's why I do that, is it? Rather than think it's they're on their own which obviously is a, a big problem. People think they're the only ones. Or maybe they might think that it's just them. Um, and while we're all unique, and while we will all have our own responses to things, there are ways of understanding our minds that will help us, you know, if we understand the relationship between the sort of parts of our mind, if you like, knowing that our mind is actually our number one fan, but it also could be our worst critic and I think for me, it's just helping people realize because often people feel very alone with their thoughts and they think that they're the only ones. And and for me, it's sharing that knowledge, really, that your mind is trying to look after you, even though it's putting you into these either anxious states or emotional responses. And it's giving you thoughts that might not make sense but then we can acknowledge it and think oh it's because that happened when I was younger or and I just think it takes the pressure off it just helps people go oh right okay and then you can start to build a strategy or find something that's right for them to, to replace it or to to make it different mm, no I understand and am, am I right in thinking that some of the work that you do is surrounding language as well and how we kind of process thoughts about ourselves when you say about the brain being possibly being our worst enemy is some of that self-talk in the mind definitely I mean I think the mind you know we, we can't stop thoughts and our minds are an association making machine so everything that you see you hear you feel your mind will be going and trying to find something that it can kind of make sense that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the good stuff it doesn't filter out doesn't think oh no that's not a good thought we won't have that it just goes here's one here's something. So when someone says at work, oh, you know, can you do a presentation next week? You know, if you have any memories of being reading out at school that was quite challenging, boom, your mind's like, oh, we don't like this. We've done this before. It will constantly give us information that's stored. Now that then is sometimes distorted, is, is not processed properly, which means we'll have these thoughts, we'll have these inner critic. And for me, it's we don't have to believe all our thoughts. So I think when people start to notice that actually you don't have to believe everything that you think, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's true, then you can't have a little bit more control over what goes next. Mm -hmm. No, I love that. that. That makes total sense. And tell us more, because obviously on this show, we always talk about perfectionism, and um, which essentially is trying to be the best. What, what kind of neurological makeup is influencing that then, do you think, of our mind and how might we combat it? So for some, and, and I would say for most people, 
perfectionism often can stem from the way that we were rewarded as children. And now it's not an exact science, this, but it does quite often play out in my experience that if you are result focused, you are more likely to seek perfection than if you are somebody who was um, rewarded or praised for your effort. So I can see that that is quite common with clients that I've worked with who do struggle with perfectionism. So if it's all about the result, the, what, what, what mark you got out of 20, not how hard you worked, you are likely to form patterns in your mind that mean you've got to get it right and you've got to get it right and it be perfect. So that's the sort of general pattern I see in terms of where it can come from. Having said that, it can start from anywhere also because quite often perfectionism in my experience can come from again that doubt our ability to question ourselves so we'll double check we'll go over something not feel happy about putting something out keep doing it again keep repeating something looking for it to be perfect and I think so that sort of not good enough is quite a challenging um, place for people and then the perfectionism comes from compensating for that belief that they've got that they're not good enough or they're not enough. So then they'll work 20 times harder to try and compensate. So you're constantly fighting against this idea. And I think the only other thing that springs to mind that is worth paying attention to is quite often the feeling that we have, we don't like. We don't like the feeling of not being good enough or feeling adequate. And we are doing things to get rid of the feeling. So often people are make it working 10 times harder again to get rid of the feeling. So when I do it all perfect, that feeling will go away. And of course it doesn't, but that's the pattern then that I see people get stuck in. Gosh, I'm questioning so many things about myself. <laughs> Taking results orientated off my CV because <laughs> that could be a red flag. And um, how can people get out of this pattern then? Because um, when you said about, you know, marks out of 10, that's all around us, isn't it? Everyone's reviewed on their performance, on their productivity, even kids in school are kind of getting marks and it strikes me as almost a fact of life, but how can we stop that sort of impacting and uh, damaging our mental health? I mean, I think you're right. It, we are all, you know, results focused. Schooling is still done very much around, you know, what, what score you've got. But I think we have to, particularly with children, we've got to honour the effort. But I also see this in business. So I often working with leaders and managers, particularly new managers, um, and if they are results focused with their teams, their staff, and not actually help them look at the effort that they've made and the progress that they've made, then people do get very hard on themselves. They become very comparing. They will compare themselves constantly to each other. But I think for me, it is about knowing that that is the pattern within us. And it's and for me, most things that we need to change, it's just being aware that that's what you're doing. So actually, we can't, you know, you don't need to undo everything. You don't need to question everything that you are, the, the way you think. But it's if it's causing you a problem, it's noticing that it even exists. So I'm quite a big fan of people just jotting stuff down that they've noticed they're thinking. So if you are thinking, oh, that's not good enough, just jot that word down, literally jot down, that's not good enough, what's not good enough see it written down because well we need to have a different relationship with ourselves around this kind of stuff because your mind thinks it's doing you a favor 
It thinks it's doing you the right thing when it's saying, oh, no, that's not good enough. Don't put that out or, um, you know, that uh, I, I dropped a point there. It thinks it's doing you a favor. And of course, ultimately, it is knocking our internal confidence because our minds need to hear good feedback. It needs to hear good praise. So we've got to find some good. You know, how often do we focus on what's not gone well? or what we haven't finished, rather than all the wonderful things that we have. No, wonderful. I love that. Um, Honour the effort. I think you should trademark that. It's brilliant. <laughs> and and then again, as well, coming back to what I said about schools being very focused of, you know, marks out of 10, actually looking back, there is, you know, there's marks for working things out or showing your workings out. They always used to say that. So maybe I'll recant that a little bit, uh, but definitely great insight on that. Thanks so much, Alison. Mm -hmm. And it, all of this, and then people have said this to me before, but what you're saying is really compounding it for me, is that our mind almost does have a diet of the thoughts, of the things that we think, of the things that we consume, because it pulls all of those into thoughts. And especially a uh, hot topic at the moment, of course, is social media and all of the things that you follow and look at through that and how that impacts your mind. Is this something you see that affects people in your work as well? I think we've all got to be really mindful about what we're listening to and what we're watching. Because our subconscious mind particularly believes everything just as it is. So it's an association making machine, as I've said. So whatever you're listening to, whatever you're watching, your mind is automatically just taking that as if it was today and if it was real. And that some people do that more than others, but all of us need to really be mindful about what we're reading, what we're filling our minds up to, you know, conversations like this, podcasts like this, feed your mind with something that it can run with, not something that it's going to read, nothing more than fear or uncertainty. The mind is an uncertainty making machine. A lot of the stuff out there isn't giving you that certainty that we need for, for our safety, really. Mm, no, that makes sense. And yeah, and also just the the sort of upbringing stuff is really piquing my interest. I did a bit of study of psychology, I mean, years ago in A-level, and we did child development. And I also did English language, where you talked about how um, language is developed when you first born into the world. And I think Steve Peters as well talks in his book, The, the Chimp Paradox, about how you speak to your kids can affect them so much in terms of like, I think the scenario that he says is, uh, your kid brings you your drawing, and then it's all about praising them as they are rather than making it about what they've achieved so saying that how valuable they are and how talented they are and then saying now let's look at your drawing versus oh look at your drawing you're really talented it's kind of just flipping those two things around I think really helps people reassure themselves is is this making any sense <laughs> Yeah, definitely definitely I think again it's the effort isn't it it's you know having having a child come to you with something and you focus on on it so whether you know if it's coloring in and they've colored in outside the lines and that's the first thing that you spot then that is going to have a massive impact on them they're all proud to bring you what they want and actually children are we are as adults no different to children only that we've got this conscious mind, we've developed a rational, logical mind. And our subconscious minds, all of us, all adults, almost acts like a two-year-old. So if you if you went to a two-year-old and just literally said, let's have a look at your work, and then criti critiqued it, 
a two-year-old would probably, you know, let's, well, I'm not sure what they would do. Tantrum, (laughs) stomp off, cry, etc. Well, in a way, we're doing that as adults internally. As an adult, we know that logically, you know, you can try and process it. But that emotional response is almost quite childlike. And when someone does point something out to you, you can feel quite childlike in that moment. And that's because the subconscious mind is like a two-year-old. And I think coming back to kind of what Steve Peter says about language and what we tell ourselves and what where the focus is, particularly for children, but as I say, it, it plays out for, for us all really, is being able to see the person rather than the behavior that they've done. So if they've colored in outside the lines, that's not them. They're not rubbish. That's just that bit of coloring. And I think, again, we can make such a difference with each other when we focus on the person and not always on the behavior. And I see that in relationships when people are moaning about each other or in business, people, managers are moaning about people. And it's not the person. We need to take that real personal element out of things because people do things, but people are not necessarily their behaviors. And I think that's something that we can change the impact of our communication with each other. Mm, My partner always says to me, partner Rob, shout out Rob if you're listening, uh, impact versus intent. It's one of his absolute favorite phrases of, you know, my intention behind this was, but the impact is perhaps what a person's taking away from it. And both parties, both the person saying it and the person receiving it have to have that in mind of what is my intention, but how is it going to impact them? And building on this then, what's um, what's your advice for giving people feedback? So if someone's asked for feedback about work, how do you do that so it's best for them and also for the person giving the feedback without throwing that two-year-old in the mind tantrum? So the first thing about feedback is to always make sure that the person giving the feedback is not in an emotional state. That's always my first rule. So if you are upset, that's not your time to give feedback. You need to settle that bit first, however people do that, before you start giving feedback to someone else. The other thing about feedback is it is often more about the person giving it than it is about the person receiving it. So if you said to me, you're talking too quickly, unless I was really, 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 really talking too quickly, you know, I thought, yeah, you're right. If, if, if I wasn't, if I was talking my normal speed, basically what you're telling me is that you would prefer it if I spoke slower. So that's about you, not necessarily about me. So one of the things that I work with businesses, particularly in people, is around finding some evidence that the person can make sense of So that as you prepare your feedback. So something that they've seen and heard or you've seen and heard. Because otherwise, what you're basically giving is your interpretation, which doesn't necessarily mean that that's feedback because we're all different you know we can we can think about our intention um we can consider the impact but actually we aren't really ever sure we can often say something that you think is so well uh, written uh, so well prepared and then the response comes back and it's like oh my gosh i didn't mean it like that or I had no idea that you were going to go there because we are all so different and we hear the world through all of these filters that we've all got individually so feedback is something that I'm really keen on helping people have be able to have a a process to be able to follow and for me it's giving that person the something that they've seen or heard before you give 
what is your interpretation? But so often people just dive in with the, you were lazy or, you know, this didn't work for me because, and not give them that evidence. That's something yeah. that you've seen and heard. I've always been told to, to sandwich it. So it's like, you're really good at, but you may want to work on, but also you're really good at to kind of, and I, I don't know, I see the value in that. I see the the problems with that, the red flags with that, but that's kind of just what I know. And that's, I would appreciate feedback receiving like that. I mean, is it, is it okay that way to do it? <laughs> no, absolutely. We need to start with something that's gone well, but still using evidence before you give your interpretation. And the reason why it's so important to give some level of something that's working well first is to settle the limbic system, to settle the emotional brain. Because if you just come at somebody with the thing that's wrong, they will be likely become defensive or retreat. So you haven't got their attention. They're not going to hear you properly. They are going to be in their survival brain. And by just settling the something that's gone well, settles everybody first and then we go for that, you know, for the more difficult conversation. So no, you're absolutely right. For me, it's what's gone well, what's not gone so well, and what could we do differently next time is the sort of sandwich. Sandwich, yes, that's the, <laughs> the word. Um, and what about then if you're on the other end? So how can you best receive feedback? I guess making sure that you're not in an emotional state you've covered, but any kind of other recommendations for, you know, entering a review meeting if you're the one being reviewed? I think it's or if the person doesn't know about giving something that's tangible, because you always think about feedback. If, if you're just telling somebody that something's in the wrong column, it's so much easier to give that kind of feedback than it is when it's something that's behavioral or something that they're doing that's causing other people a problem. And I think if we get feedback that hasn't got any evidence and you're on the receiving end, ask, ask what is it that they've seen and heard that that tells them that you're doing that? Because sometimes it's not feedback, you know, and we don't have to accept everything. But if people can't say, you know, if, you, if, if somebody wanted to say, you know, we don't think you're engaged in the team, that's not feedback. So we'd need to know what it is that they're doing that tells the, that, that their interpretation is that they're not engaged. And then people could are less likely to be defensive and more likely to be able to make a change. And again, it's a bit like children. You know, if you just said, that's brilliant then they like, oh, yeah, cool, that's good. But what's brilliant? Children need to have it spelt out that your colouring in is brilliant or that your thing, so that they know how to repeat it. And I think, again, we miss that trick of just, it seems so obvious, doesn't it, when you say it, but actually we, in general conversation, we don't necessarily pause to actually say what it is that we think is good. Solid advice. No, I love that. I'm learning loads. And I guess bringing these two kind of segues together in terms of feedback, what we talked about, child development and um, talking to people sort of openly without igniting the emotional side of things. How can we consider, because a big part of what you talk about is how your past impacts you and how that brings your sort of mindset in the present as well as social pressures. How can we be aware of that? You know, for me, everything starts with being aware of what's going on. So without judgment, so being aware of whatever your thoughts are, be aware of if you feel worried or if you feel sad or if you feel angry, be aware of what is actually happening first, just noticing, just noticing what, what that thought is, what that feeling is, but it has to be without judgment, without that fight, 
because quite a lot of people will get cross and angry or upset with their thoughts, with their feelings, that internal kind of fight that they've got with themselves. And for me, literally, I would say to everyone, it's just being like, oh, okay, I'm thinking that. Oh, right. Okay. I feel that. And sometimes we need to sort of sit with that. And again, you know, some clients obviously hate me for it because I'll get them to sit in their discomfort. But for me, those sort of aha moments almost without sounding corny come from us just being present to whatever it is. And then the work starts, obviously, for what you're going to do to change that. But if you're not aware, you don't pause and become aware of how you feel. How, how are you going to change it? Because that is the auto then, the autopilot. Mm, and I think that I relate to what you're saying about the clients, because I think that in this kind of fast paced day and age, a little bit of social media, but a little bit because of working culture at the moment, everyone's, no one sits still. You know, I, I talk from personal experience about this. I never sit still. I have to be doing something. And if I'm not doing something, I feel uncomfortable, like I should be doing something, like I'm avoiding my responsibilities or whatever. So I think your advice is solid of literally just sitting in the moment and not doing anything so that you can, the thing that you're doing is feeling right rather than being. Yeah. And you talked earlier about using some of those things as maybe to mask how you're feeling and to hide how you're feeling and to abate your feelings rather than embrace them so that's really hit me as you know an aha moment (laughs) nice and I think the other thing just to add there maybe for you and I'm sure for others I'm also quite a big fan of remembering that doing nothing is doing something because you are just being it might you might not be doing your your to-do list you might not be doing your all your jobs that you think but actually in that moment you are doing something you are resting your mind You might be resting your body. You're giving yourself permission to watch some fun thing on the TV or whatever your thing is. And so many people are beating themselves up for not doing something all of the time. And actually, there are times where we just need to say, I don't need to do anything right now. And that in itself is just resting, resting your mind, just being, just being. I'll be honest with you, I didn't used to be very good at that. I'm with you. I was much more of a, I'm still quite a busy person, but I was much more of a busy person than I've learned to be now. And I do give myself permission to just think, yep, it's the right thing to do. I'm just going to sit and watch some rubbish or whatever, because I can. Love it. Maybe if I put sit and do nothing on my to-do list and I'll tick it off after I've done it, maybe that will (laughs) reverse psychology for me. (laughs) Brilliant. And so if people are listening to this and having sort of realizations, you know, uh, again, picking up what you're talking about, the genetic makeup of uh, our mind and realizing and bringing attention to why we do certain things. If someone picks up that there is something in the past, perhaps it was a parent, perhaps it was a boss from a previous experience that is impacting them in the present how can they work to kind of rectify that and fix that for themselves? Obviously bringing attention to it to start with is is crucial, but what about from there? Yeah, noticing that it's there, noticing the habits there and and no judgment because it will be, we're all going to have stuff that's, it's normal. It's the way we're wired. For me, it's always seeing if, if it's something that's negative, usually we don't even pay attention to the good stuff, but if it's something that's negative, if there was a way that you could reframe it so that you can see whatever it was as an experience where you've gained something from it is usually the way I would look at it. So a lot of people get stuck 
in the past going over and over and over what happened and what got said and what got done and what got didn't said, etc. Sometimes blaming um, others, sometimes not taking responsibility. There are so much freedom that comes from being able to look at a situation slightly differently. And that's why a lot of people seek coaches and come and talk to people like me and go and talk to their friends is because they can you can then see it maybe through a different lens. But if you're able to see what you've gained, so not just through a different lens, what have you gained? So if I use my example, I used to blame for a long time, you know, the way my parents were with me as to why I didn't have a lot of confidence. But when I started to look at the way that I'd been parented, um, and it was, you know, it was quite, they were quite tough, tough love. I have reframed it that I'm actually very independent, a very determined person. Now I've reframed the whole of how it was and I can see some of the qualities that are in me now and I see it through this lens, which means it just, I can just let go of all that horribleness that isn't helping me. It's not serving me. It doesn't get me anywhere. And I did that for a long time until I started to look at, well, okay, then who am I as a result or because of the things that have happened to me. And I think there people can find a lot of peace. No, that's wonderful. And it really resides with me as well. I always try and come out of any situation and not necessarily think of something positive, but just think of something that has been useful out of the experience. And this comes from actually a previous guest, Judith, talks about, or she did in her episode of what's the worst that could happen. It will be just that you know where you stand. So I kind of come out of a situation and go, oh, well, now I know X, Y, and Z because of that, rather than being like, that was so bad because of X, Y, and Z. It's more, um, I guess, neutral, neutral language yeah. in the in the what you know from that situation. But so many people get stuck in that story, though, of what's happened. So many mm -hmm. people get stuck. And, and what about, so again, using my own kind of experience of examples here, something that we talk about a lot is public speaking. It's something that I, I like to do that's sort of big in my career area. If someone's had a disastrous public experience, public speaking experience, if they move on to have a positive one, can you sort of overwrite? Is that how you can move on in terms of engineering a more positive experience and then almost overcoming a bit of fear? Is that helpful? Definitely. I mean, the mind will remember everything. But obviously, we, we want to pay attention to it's like what's going to be coming to the front of your mind. So if you keep bringing the story that you had a bad experience presenting, then your mind will give you all the fear, all the feelings and everything that went with that. As soon as you start to have a better experience, that's got to be brought into the fore so that your mind could start to be like, oh, OK, well, there's this as well. And then we pay attention to that and you build on that. You know, the same person had the horrible experience presenting and then the reasonable one which which part of you are you going to pay attention to and the mind will go along with whichever one you know you can that you know I kind of almost hate this saying but you know you fake it till you make it from your mind's perspective you can you can literally go I can do this I can do this I'm doing this I did it and focus on that quite often I'll hear people say oh you know something went really well I can't believe it went really well I'm like whoa 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 Let's believe it. It went well, you know. <laughs> it's like negotiating with a toddler, isn't it? Like the two-year-old. I think you've put that in such good terms of, or good um, as a good metaphor of like trying to make a two-year-old do something. Exactly. <laughs> Dragging them up on stage. Exactly. But what would you say to a two-year-old? You, you would encourage them. You would give them kind words. You know, we are so hard on ourselves as adults. We don't do that 
what would you say? You know, literally, if you, if you were that toddler and you're trying to get up on a stage, what would you, you wouldn't be saying, God, I'm rubbish, I'm useless. You'd be saying, come on, you've got this. You know, you can do this. And we need to do more of that. Amazing, amazing. What a lovely, positive note to, to finish on. Thank you so much, Alison. And if anyone's listening to this and the content's residing with them, how can they connect with you to learn more? Well, one of the ways that I love people to connect with is actually to buy my book because not for me, but for them, because everything that we've talked about and a million times more is in my book. So that's one way that you can get a lot of content. And I believe that, as I said before, if you uh, have knowledge, then you can start to change, make new skills and then become a habit. So my book series is called A Path Travelled, but I'm also on Instagram, Alison Two Minds, number two. I'm on Facebook, Two Minds UK. I have a YouTube uh, channel, Two Minds, which has all my radio shows called Making Sense, which is a small um community radio that um we have a, i have a show on there and we play a few tunes so it's a bit like this but we play some tunes too so it's good fun but um you know i think for me it's just about people finding whoever and whatever the right way that they can make some sense of their own lives really love that love that well alison it's been such a pleasure thank you so much we'll put all of those links in the show notes so people can get in touch and it's been a pleasure to talk to you today thank you so much for having me and thank you so much, everyone, for listening. We'll speak to you on the next episode. Thank you so much for listening, fellow imperfectionist. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I hope it has inspired you to get closer to your true purpose in life. If you have a question, thoughts on this episode or suggestions of topics or even future guests, I would love to hear from you. Visit pickingupperfection.com slash participate. You can also follow me on my socials, Instagram, LinkedIn, and even contact me via email. Links for all of this are in the show notes. See you next time.